You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for us today. Thank you, Roseanne. Just before you sit down, just um, open your hands in front of you. I just want to pray for you. Lord, would you take this teaching from Jesus, these images and this lesson, and today would you plant it in our hearts like a seed, that the seed would then go on to grow and be a good fruit. So plant this in our hearts now, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. I apologize for my voice today. I've got uh, that Auckland hay fever that's kind of washed across the city. Some of you are also living with it, I'm sure. Um, All right. So I want you to hold your place in that scripture. We're going to come back to it soon. But um, before we do, let's start with a bit of a history lesson this morning. Um, The Roman Empire was full of grandeur. It was full of power. It was full of concrete. It was full of iron pillars and colosseums, but it didn't have one building in particular. The Roman Empire didn't have a public hospital. There was no ICU ward, there was no oncology, there was no NICU or PICU, there was no starship, there was no ventilators, there was no x-ray. In the ancient world, there was a lot of things, but there was not public health care for the masses. Ancient societies and religions are not historically well known for their care of the sick and the dying. If anything, history actually tells us that they will be remembered for their abandonment of the sick and the dying. Uh, Roman religion didn't teach followers to care for the helpless. And in ancient Greek religion, the gods were sought for healing. You'd come to a god for healing. But there was no social ethic of caring for the sick and the dying that the gods encouraged. And so if the gods didn't do anything, no one else had to either. So destitute families who were lacking any resources to help, um, they, they sometimes just abandoned the chronically ill in their households to die. Um, history records Romans sending their sick or elderly slaves to Tiber Island to waste away. Unwanted children were often left to die of exposure out on the streets. And if a father decided that the family couldn't afford to feed another child, that child would be abandoned on the steps of a temple or in the public square, left. Almost without exception, defective newborns were always exposed in the same way. The sick who could not work were often unsupported and they were socially demoted. They had to turn to begging and life on the fringes of a society that they may have only just been at the centre of only weeks earlier. And it's against this backdrop, Christianity enters into the story as a distinct contrast. 
The early Jesus followers grasped that the scriptures taught this intrinsic value for every human being. And this is what motivated early Christians to begin caring for the ailing amongst them. Church leaders followed the biblical admonition to visit the sick. Congregations and communities set up formal practices of care. Discarded children would be picked up and they would be enfolded into literal families within the church. And as this became common among Christians, it it was then a challenge to then take it to the non-Christians as well. And this, this was the early church's work of being salt and being light. So sociologist and uh, historian Rodney Stark, he tells of the story in the book, The the Rise of Christianity, but also in another book, The Triumph of Christianity. I just want to read some excerpts from The Triumph of Christianity for you today. Buckle in for a little story from history. He says this, In the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians suspect this was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. Whatever the actual disease, it was lethal. And as many contagious diseases are when they strike a previously unexposed population. During the 15-year duration of the epidemic, a quarter to a third of the population probably died of it. And at the height of the epidemic, mortality was so great in many cities that the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who subsequently died of the disease, wrote of caravans of carts and wagons hauling out the dead. And then, a century later, came another great plague, Once again, the Greco-Roman world trembled as on all sides, family, friends, and neighbors died horribly. No one knew how to treat the stricken, nor did most people try. During the first plague, the famous classical physician Galen had fled Rome for his country estate where he stayed until the danger subsided. But for those who could not flee, the typical response was to try to avoid any contact with the afflicted, since it was understood that the disease was contagious. Hence, When their first symptom appeared, victims often were thrown into the streets where the dead and the dying lay in piles. And in a pastoral letter written during the second epidemic uh, in 251, Bishop Dionysus described events in Alexandria. This is what the bishop wrote. At the first onset of the disease, they, the pagans, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now this is behaviour that would have just been completely historically normal. There's absolutely no surprises here, as I said before. This is not a world where public health care is a norm yet. So the surprise comes next, not in that moment, but actually in what Dionysus says of what the early church did. This is what he reports. Most of our Christian brothers and sisters showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, tending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Uh, Later on, there's a Cyprian plague Only a hundred years later, and this time, Eusebius 
says this in 313 AD. He says, For they alone, the Christians, in the midst of such ills, showed their sympathy and humanity by their deeds. Every day, some continued caring for and burying the dead, for there were multitudes who had no one to care for them. Others collected in one place those who were afflicted by the famine, and throughout the entire city, they gave bread to them all so that the thing became reported abroad among all men and they glorified the God of the Christians. Rodney Stark concludes in his writings that part of the rise or the triumph of Christianity from this small Jewish sect, this small group of believers scattered into a few different parts of the Mediterranean into what would only be in a few centuries time the religion of the Roman Empire. What was it that moved it from that one to that one? Well, it was this story of how they handled themselves amongst the great plagues. And he says this, it was their embodied, compassionate response. It was their embodied, compassionate response. It was not just a theory, it was lived. Throughout many other plagues, the response was the same and their witness has been similar. Their example has been followed throughout history of the Christian church for centuries. You know, Catholic orders have been set up around the world devoted to care. Mennonites in Holland and Quakers in England have formed societies to improve health care in their neighbourhoods. Modern medical missionaries and organisations still to this day carry on in this mission of compassionate good deeds lived into societies lived at the interface of suffering in the world. And it all started, it all starts with a small group of Jesus-following Christians who took seriously a call. The call was what? To compassionately practice in the world. The Hebrew scripture, the Hebrew, sorry, the Hebrew scriptures called them to it. We looked at that two weeks ago. What was Jesus's vision of social justice? What was Jesus's vision of the compassionate life? It was this this blending of three Hebrew words: has said, steadfast love, mishpat, justice, and shalom. All things being right. All of those things together was this vision that they lived into the world. And their rabbi Jesus had taught them this and told them, "This is what I've called you to do." Their God of compassionate acts to them was to be replicated in acts of good works. Good works. This phrase, or maybe a better way to put it is not a phrase, but a, a biblical motto. This is the title of today's talk. Compassion as good works. Now, now, now last week, last week I showed you this little diagram here. I explained how with compassion... It's outworked as servanthood, and servanthood takes on two practices, submission and service. And so you can listen to last week's talk if you missed that. I'd love you to check it out. But we could sum it all up. We could explain it all with this biblical motto, this beautiful phrase that appears throughout the New Testament of good works. Today, in a world of charities and in a world of social services and hospitals and rest homes and food banks and salvation armies and the workplace rights and social benefits from our government. And amongst this moment, this phrase has perhaps lost its potency. But for the first couple of centuries of disciples following Jesus, this phrase, good works, this was their great call. This was their beacon into the, into the darkness of the world. 
And it was a beckon to come and live the compassionate life, sacrificially into the world, even to their own deaths. It was a revolution. It was a way to literally do with your physical life as Christ had done for them, to live in such a way towards their neighbours in such love that they would lay their lives down for them. Today, I wonder, I wonder if we need to recover this phrase and I wonder if we need to recover its radical call, getting back to the way that it was always meant to be intended. And so many of us probably think of good works and what comes to mind is probably more of a like a whimsical, like, hey, do a random act of kindness and buy the checkout lady that just put your groceries through a, a chocolate bar. Good on you. That's a good work. No, just me. You know, we used to have this day, we used to have this week in my church that was growing up called um, Random Acts of Kindness Week. And it was like doing stuff like that. But actually, I wonder if we need to recover back to the radicalness of this. What would it look like if we returned to its original potency? What, what if we could reclaim this great mission of people on the mission of good works? Yes, times have changed. I understand that. I know that we're not currently in this sort of pre-medical world of the Roman Empire where the masses aren't able to walk up to hospitals. We can walk up to hospitals. That's a huge blessing. We have infrastructure now in our society of all these things that are working in such beautiful ways. Yes, I get that. But, but, but still, there are great areas of need in our neighbourhoods, aren't there? You know some of these. You might be living some of them yourself. There are areas of need in our city, there are areas of need in society. There are areas of need that we find ourselves coming up against at the interface. And we are called to be the people of good works. We are called to live compassionate expressions into those spaces. And so to explore that, I want you to open back to the scripture that Roseanne took us through just earlier. I'd love you to turn back to Matthew 5, 13 through to 16, whether it's on your phone or whether it's on your actual Bible. And again, if you want to grab a Bible, you can grab one from the table over there. would love you to have that. So let's go through Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And we're going to have a little look here at what Jesus is teaching. So firstly, Matthew 5 is, is the first of three great chapters of the Bible. Three great chapters that as Christians we should be deeply invested in. And I just want to remind you of that. This is at the start of something called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' great group of teachings all put into one place. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount because as verse 1 says, Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. I mean, talk about like naming on the tin what's in the tin, right? Like it's the Sermon on the Mount because he's literally sitting on a mountain. And he sat down and his disciples would have been gathered close to him as, there was, as was the tradition. When you were with your rabbi, you sat close to your rabbi and you listened to your rabbi. And then around the disciples, around that inner ring, there would have been the rest of the crowd gathering, leaning their ear in to listen to Jesus. And so he starts teaching. The first thing he teaches are the Beatitudes, these, these beautiful statements of life lived in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 13, we come to the words that we heard today. Firstly, you are the salt of the earth. Now, now when Jesus says you... He is saying this at two levels. Firstly, there is a singular level. There's this level of the hearer themselves. And then there is this plural sense to that statement. 
He's saying it to the crowd, all of those who are gathered around. But then there's actually another widening of the you. He is speaking it to all of Israel. He's talking about the context in which this whole sermon and his whole action sits in. All of Israel. Jesus is drawing the hearers here to participate, not just in something for themselves as a singular hearer. He's drawing them into this larger story. He's just taught on the Beatitudes, remember, life in the kingdom of God. He's drawing them in and he's saying, as people of Israel, as people of Yahweh, you is a wide embrace. Jesus is, is, is kind of moved from teacher here into the mode of a prophet. He's drawing them in. He's reaching into the story that has been lived. He's drawing them into the present moment. He's drawing them into a future. He's reaching into this history of the people who are blessed to be a blessing in Genesis 12. And so from those beatitudes, those statements of blessing, he's now showing that same um, hinge. He's saying, I've just taught you how to be blessed. Now I'm gonna tell you that you are to be a blessing. It's Genesis 12 playing out all over again. Here's how you be blessed. Live this beatituded life. I don't know if that's the right phrase. I'm so sorry if it's, I've butchered an English word there, but that's all right. Um, you live in this way and then you live it out into the world. He is shifting from a life that is meant to be receiving to a life that is giving. And so you, you is not just for the personal hearer. You is a corporate call. You is an invitation to participate. It's a rallying cry from Jesus as he says, you, Israel, you know who you're meant to have been. Be those people. And so it's in this wide posture in the story, Jesus then starts to hold up a couple of key images to the listeners that day. A couple of key things to get their imaginations going. So firstly, he talks about salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now we know what salt is. I'm not going to do a youth group teaching on you now and like get you to reach under your chair and pull it. Oh, am I? Reach under your chair? No, I am not. Um, but we know what salt does. Okay, we know that it's meant to bring out the flavor in something. We know that you put it on something that's lacking flavor and salt brings the flavor in with a punch. But the lesson here that Jesus is making is not that, 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 that this is the thing of just like be salty. No, the, the lesson that Jesus is actually talking about here is what happens when you've lost your saltiness? What do you do when your salt has lost its saltiness? Well, actually, you can't make salty, you can't make salt salty again. It's useless. And so it needs to be thrown to the ground and just trampled. Anyone else got a kitchen where like it's gritty? Yeah, it's just like that. It's like, just discard it. Put it down with all the grit. So what do you do when salt has lost its flavor? What do you do? Well, you have to go back to the mines. You have to go back to the source. You have to go and dig again. You have to return to where the salt comes from. And so the lesson here is not, hey, try to be more salty. Conjure it up. Become salty people by your own willpower. It's not what Jesus is saying. The lesson here is, no, 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 no. Return to the mine. Return to the one who can give you your saltiness. If you're not salty, 
Go back to the place that will give you salt to begin with. You know, here again, Jesus is echoing those prophets before him, stating that the right action is not being done. And what do we need to do? We need to return. We need to return to getting the space of salt sorted. So, the one who is the salt mine, Jesus, is saying, come to me. Come to me and I will make you these people. Now, for some of you, you've probably just heard the bit you needed to hear today. And the rest of the sermon is kind of irrelevant. I bless you with that. If you need to return to the salt mine, I'll return to the salt mine. But there's a second image. The second image is light. So he goes on and he changes the gear here and he uses another idea. And the idea is light. Now, light is a symbol in the scriptures of God's life, presence, and mission. And, and light does its job. It lights up like a beacon. Now, I've actually done a whole talk in the past, which you can actually find in the archives of our website. The, the talk was called um, A Theology of Light and Lampstands. And it's actually from back in 2016, a very early part of the life of this church. But I would love you to go back and just archive search and have a listen. Uh, my voice sounds a little bit different that day. Um, but listen as I, as I teach a thread that runs from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 of this thread of light running through the entire biblical narrative. Uh, I don't want to repeat myself today, but I do just want to draw on a couple of things from that lesson. Just a couple of things that I want to make sure that we all know in here. Uh, I want you to notice an important piece of what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount teaching. Notice of where it's aimed. It is aimed at you are the light of the world. Now in John's gospel here, in John, what is it, 8 verse 12, Jesus says one of his seven I am statements. I am the light of the world, he says. And I think for most of us, we can get on board with that, can't we? Yeah. Yeah, of course, Jesus, who is God incarnate, he can say that. He can be the light of the world. Yeah, of course, Jesus, the great light of humanity, he can do that. Yeah, the one who is the new temple, the new Messiah, the great prophet, of course, the high priest. Yeah, he can be that, definitely. He's the one fulfilling all this stuff for crying out loud. He can say that about himself. But note what he is saying in Matthew 5. He is not saying, I am the light of the world. He is saying, you are the light of the world. You, you, again, remember this beckoning in to this big story. You are the light of the world. It's this rallying cry. It's this call. It's a naming. It's an identity moment. Uh, in Revelation, in John's Revelation, at the end of your Bibles, it opens with this amazing little statement here in Revelation 1 verse 20, where, where John records Jesus speaking to him. And Jesus speaks to him about seven churches. And the title that he, the, the image he uses to speak about the seven churches is that they are the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands. So, so to Jesus, to Jesus, lampstands are spaces that hold light. What an analogy, what an image to say this is what a church is. A church is a lampstand. This is our calling. And this is who we're called to be. Central Vineyard is a lampstand placed here in this city to shine. And you and I, we are the lights on this lampstand. And this is our calling. This is what comes to mind when Jesus thinks of his church. 
when he thinks of this place and our friends all throughout the city who are doing this together as well with us this morning, he is thinking of lampstands placed in neighbourhoods called to shine. So Jesus, he uses this light illustration and he goes in a couple of different directions. Back to Matthew 5. He speaks about firstly, that it is like a city on a hill. Now let me just reorder that for you today just to kind of get our, 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 our imaginations working a little bit. Has anyone driven over the Bombays from the south to the north at nighttime? And you drive over the Bombays and there's that big strip of motorway in front of you and then there's the glow of Auckland City up in front as you start tracking towards home. You know, for me, usually that comes about four and a half hours after leaving Taranaki when I'm leaving from seeing my family and my parents and it's like, oh, I'm nearly there. I'm nearly there. Those are the lights of home. There it is on the horizon. Or maybe it's like standing at the edge of the city and looking at the harbour bridge as it has been lit up by Vector beautifully. It can't be hidden. It's just there to display. It's there to do its job. It's just there to shine. And this, this is the beacon that Jesus is teaching on. It's to be a great display. It is meant to be on the horizon. It is meant to catch people's attention when they are lost and trying to find home. And it's to do its job of just shining. Now, secondly, he goes on from that meta picture to a slightly smaller picture. He goes on to teach about something smaller. He talks about this um, light as a lamp, a lamp in a household on a, on a, um, on a, on a stand. Now, now, this would have been one of these. This is an ancient lamp. Uh, this is how they worked. They had oil poured into them. They had a wick coming out the end there. And this is what you would have had. Remember, this is not the life of power and electricity and convenience and flicking a light switch. Or for those of us who have now got our phone doing all the work for us and we can turn stuff on as we're walking into the house on our phones with like Apple House or whatever it's called. Um, this is not that world. This is a world where to have household light, you simply had a couple of those if you're really lucky you might, or you might just have one and you would, you would um, spend the afternoon getting your oil in it, getting the wick ready. It was a resource that took time and energy and care and effort to use. I mean, for those of us that still have some pieces of our house that actually require our attention, you'll know what I mean. For those of you who have a fireplace for your heating versus those of us who have heat pumps for heating, for those of you with fireplaces, you can't just sit and forget that thing, can you? In about 45 minutes to an hour, you've got to go back and put some more wood on. You have to tend to the fire. You have to work with the fire or else you end up cold. Now we're so used to convenience. We're so used to our heat pumps and all these things that we've forgotten what it is to actually tend to something. But this is the world where actually to even have light in your house, you would have to tend to your lamp. And so Jesus is saying, you wouldn't have this lamp and put it under a basket, would you? No, no, of course you wouldn't because you've worked really hard. You've cared for it. You've got it set up. It's taken time and energy and resource. Of course you're not going to put it under a basket. He's saying, you know how much effort and care you put into that lamp. Don't tuck it away. Don't hide it. Let it shine, Jesus says. And then he says his lesson. In the same way, let your good deeds or good works is another translation. Good works shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. How are we doing? We okay? All right. How are we doing? We okay? All right, cool. Now the New Testament writers, they go on to echo this idea further. In 1 Timothy, we have, tell them to use their money to do good. 
They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Uh, Or in Titus, there's a couple of pieces where Titus starts and finishes with this idea. You yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. And then Titus 3 verse 14, our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. In Hebrews, I love this one in Hebrews. I think this is a stunning scripture. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. But perhaps the most famous reiteration of Jesus' words from Matthew 5, 13 to 17 come from James. Uh, They deserve to be mentioned because like Jesus' original setting, they come not just as a vision, but they come as a bit of a challenge and a bit of a correction. So echoing that challenge and correction, we have James. James says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. James's argument here is a movement. Okay, he is doing this great job of making his point and he does it in a movement. The movement is this. Faith does not exist for itself. Faith produces good words, good works. Produces is the key word. Faith produces good works. It's like a healthy tree, a healthy tree which grows good fruit. Healthy faith should grow good works of compassion. One should make the other happen. It's a classic cause and effect argument. True faith produces good works into the world. Or as Jesus put it, life in the kingdom then produces signs of salt and light as a witness into our time and place. This movement from one to the other raises one of the key metric markers for our Christian faith. This is an incredibly important metric marker for us all today. As any good metric does, we can look at the results, we can assess them, and we can tell as a measurement how things are. Are they healthy or aren't they? Our deeds, our good works actually show, as James is trying to say, the condition of our faith. They actually show whether we've got this or not. They show whether it's alive and active or not. You know, like an oil stick in your car taken out can show if you need an oil change or not. Or like the sniff of the last of the milk in the bottom tells you if it's sour and off or not. Or or like your Wi-Fi symbol on your phone going all opaque and crossed out tells you that there's probably a problem with your internet at home. This metric, this metric of good works is a bit like that dipstick. It's a bit like that sniff of the milk. It's a little bit like that icon on the corner of your phone that you depend on every day. It shows us the state of our faith. It's quite confronting, isn't it? It's quite confronting. But today, with that reality before us, as we sit in that confrontation, Jesus declares to us, oh, central vineyard, 
You are to be salt. You are to be light. Again, if I could just zoom us out slightly more. If you're living the beatitude life, if you're living the kingdom life, then this is just who you'll be. You'll be these people. It's this prophetic echo. It's a confronting reminder. Hey, this is what this was always meant to be about. This is what it was always meant to produce, remember? Your faith is meant to be the space of being blessed by God to be blessed, blessing into the world. So, so how do we do it? How do we join God in doing these things? Well, the term is good works. So let's just break down uh, each of these words just bit by bit just for a few moments before we finish today. Firstly, the word good. Good. Good is, is who we believe God to be. Amen? Amen. <laughs> good is, as the psalmist puts it, and as God himself put it to Moses, and the psalmist is just echoing him, God is gracious and compassionate, full of unfailing love and mercy. That's goodness. He is slow to anger, and he is rich in love. That is goodness. And so to do good works is to echo those same uh, attributes into the world. Remember, this is sitting within the compassionate life part of our series. So what I'm saying there is good works are acts of compassion that echo the fact that we believe God is compassionate. And his same compassion towards us, we're living that compassion into the world. It's this kingdom vision from Jesus, said, mishpat, and shalom. Goodness is framed up in those three things, held in tension of those three things. God is a God of steadfast love, but he's also a God of justice. He wants to put rights what has been wronged, and he's doing it into this trajectory of all things being well again. And God is always, sorry, good is always set against bad, isn't it? That's just part of good storytelling. Someone who is good is always set amongst a bad moment. So a simple question to ask might be this as we think about good works. What would bring about the betterment of someone's suffering or need? What would bring about relief in amongst a story of brokenness? What would bring about a taste of all things being right where things are not right? Good is set amongst bad. Good is set amongst that story. So to do a good work could be as simple as offering a kind word or a small random gesture to somebody like I spoke about before. But it can also be as gutsy and as courageous and as costly as giving a million dollars to a startup as they're looking to build an orphanage over in Africa. Or it could be buying a whole downtown um, building with a dream of saying, one day there will be a this will be a premises for some goodness into the middle of our city. People will live here who have no homes. Like it could be anything in between either of those spectrums. It could be simple little acts of kindness and words, or it could be big, gutsy, costly events. It can be moments and it can be initiatives, but also I'm very aware with this church and, and you sitting in front of me today, it can be entire callings. Some of you are sitting here and what you're about to go and do at work tomorrow is good. Some of you are sitting here, most of you are sitting here, and what you are about to go and get paid to do this week is good. It's acts of goodness 
into the world. It's a good vocation. It's a good calling. I'm just thinking of those of you who are looking back at me that are nurses and are practicing medicine. Those of you who are teachers. Those of you who are in the field of education. Those of you who are parents. Those of you who are building homes. Those of you who are architects. You live with this driving motivator that what I do is to do something good here in this city. Something that reflects what God is about into this city. What a blessing that is. What a fantastic thing that is. Some of us get paid to do good works. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> Secondly, good works. Second word. I feel like I'm playing charades. Second word. Works. I don't even know if that's what you do. <laughs> Dave's like, that's not what you do. <laughs> I know what you do and that's not it. Right, works. What would you do? What would you do, Dave? What would be second word? I'll just, you just do that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what this was. <laughs> this is a slightly intense talk today. I was just trying to lighten the mood there. Right. Works, part two. So if, if we're called to do something good, and that's the first part, well, the second part is we are called to do something. Works are the actual doing of things. Another word in the scriptures we've already seen today is the word deeds, the actual action of things, doing things into the world. Simply, it's, it's that things we do become these actions and the moments of assistance. They become offerings. They become sacrificial moments of generosity. They become these places that something happens. You know, last week I, I spoke on this compassionate life as a life of servanthood. And part of those two things that I showed you earlier was we talked about submission and then we talked about service. Service, service is the action point. Service is where we actually act and do something into the world that we notice that needs doing. And so our best good works are often going to feel like service. That's the practice that we're going to lean into the most. We're actually going to be acting into the space of practicing compassion and acts of service. But the point is, the point is that they're actions. You know, for the early church, for the early church, they didn't just think about how they were to respond to those plagues that I told you about. They acted into them. They did it. Their presence in the midst of the plague was not just their thought about it or their desire to do it. It was their actual action. And so what would be our version today, I wonder? What would be the plagues around us today that we need to now act in? What would be the things that are showing up in the middle of our city or on your news feeds or in the conversations you have with employees and work colleagues? What would it be at the moment that would be the plagues that are at our doorstep? Where are the bodies piling up? Where is the need? Who needs us? And what can we do? Good works are the action point at the interface of that moment. At that intersection, that is where good works are being done. Now, during the pandemic, we started an initiative in this community that we called Friendly Neighbours. A bunch of you participated in it and a bunch of you even received from this. Simply it was this, when people were isolating with COVID at home, we wanted to get you a care pack, something to say we love you, we wanted to meet your needs in some kind of way, do your shopping. And so, so we, we pulled together this thing called Friendly Neighbours. Now, the need for Friendly Neighbours is actually probably over. The list that we had has gone quiet. The common story in our everyday life out there tomorrow now is, is not about lockdowns and isolations anymore. And there's a little bit of that still, I get that, but it's not the dominant story anymore. So, so 
what does that mean about something like friendly neighbours? Has friendly neighbours ended? Or is there still a call here? You know, as we put our lives back together and as we start to move forward as a community, but also as people, we need to take care seriously. The need is still present. The, the need to be seen is still real. There is an opportunity right in this room and there's an opportunity Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday out in our city. An opportunity to still spot those around us who we need to say, you are my neighbour and I want to show love for you. We are still called to a moment of opportunity to bring out the salty flavour of God's goodness and to let the light of his mission shine. And so I wonder, I wonder what it might look like for friendly neighbours to be laid with this vision of good works today. What would it mean now? What would it mean to be a compassionate person tomorrow doing good works to those around you that you notice need something? You know, can, can, you, can you sense the invitation here? Can, can you sense what I'm trying to get at? Can you feel the potential in what I'm saying? You know, what story could be written by a church who have returned to the salt mine who have collected fresh salt from their rabbi, this rabbi who says, be compassionate people and are now moving in tactile expressions out into the city to do so. I wonder what expressions of love and care could be found as stories that we would live together. You know, if we are serious about following Jesus, as I know so many of us in this room are, I know it's important, I know it's dear to our hearts. If we're serious about following Jesus, we have to realise today the confronting nature of his words. If you're serious about following me, your life will bear good fruit of good works into the world. We have a vision here at Central Vineyard that Ella already ran you through this morning, but I just want to run you through it again. Here is, at this church, we're trying to pursue Jesus and play our part into what God is doing in the world right now. So to invite you to participate in this family, to invite you into, into doing as we are trying to do here, it's two things. Number one, we want you to step into the future of this church always in pursuit of Jesus. We invite you that him, pursuing Him is the first thing, the most important thing, the pearl of great price of our lives. We follow Him first and we follow Him foremost. And then, individually and communally together, we, 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 we take what He has taught us and we turn that into displays into the city. Displays of love and of justice and of things being put right. We partner with His Spirit and we see what is happening as we partner with the God who is doing things in this moment in our city that we may play our part as salt and light people in this season, in this moment, here in this city. Our goal as a church is to be that lampstand that I spoke about earlier and to take that seriously. But for us to do that, we need to decide together in our own hearts if that is something that we're going to walk forward into. There's a job in front of us. There is a city that needs compassionate care. And that's the invitation. Will I walk that way? So my hope is this. May we be a church who go back to the salt mine and determine to figure out how to shine afresh in this moment. May we be people who pursue Jesus. He is our salt mine. And determine how to play our part, shine like light into the city. So to close this up,
let's land this thing. Today, today I have tried to give you this sense of this biblical motto. The motto was good works. I've tried to just load it up tried to give you a bit of an imagination for it. I've tried to take that set of words and, and to, to, I guess, restore it and put it in a place where it says, this is a great call, a great call to mission. These are two very important words for us to reclaim as Christians. You know, good words, good works, sorry, aren't just cute. They're not just whimsical. They're not just random. Nor are they just for the hard out activists amongst us. Good works are the biblical title and motto given to the compassionate life lived. So as we land this facet of the series, which has tried to look at the compassionate life, that's been the exploration for a month now, good works is the perfect point to finish the exploration. And it's for two reasons that I think it's the perfect point to finish at. Number one, good works sums up the journey that we've been on. They are the summary of a compassionate life. But number two, it draws us further in the journey. It draws us on. If good works are a metric for the future for our lives with Jesus, then then we will have to walk forward paying attention to that metric. Are we meeting it? Is it alive here? Or do we need to step up to that growth edge, take a deep breath and pursue something? Here, In this community, I invite you, I invite you, we invite you, whether it's easy for you or whether it's a total stretch and this is a total hard thing for you to do, oh, could we get on this journey again? Could we get on this journey again? A life where following the compassionate Christ is bringing about compassionate good works into the city. So I want to finish with the words of Jesus as the manifesto and the benediction for today. Those final words from his teaching in Matthew. Let your good works shine before all to see that they what might glorify God. Let your good works shine that they may point to the greatness of Him. That's what this is all about. As our God is compassionate towards us, we reflect that and echo that. We do as He has done for us as the great echo lived into reality.